Binge heads. Diagon Alley is abuzz with the news. And so is Rita Skeeter. The entire binge mode Harry Potter season, as well as the full binge mode archive, including binge mode Game of Thrones, binge mode Star Wars, and binge mode Weekly, now available to listen to for free exclusively on Spotify. Grab a stool at the Leaky Cauldron in your hearts and enjoy. Binge Mode is presented by Universal Orlando Resort. With three amazing theme parks, spectacular resort hotels, and unforgettable dining and entertainment, Universal Orlando Resort is where you can vacation at the next level. We here at Binge Mode are so excited. So excited. So excited to visit Universal Orlando Resort. In just a couple weeks, we're going to be there in late June. Maybe we'll see some of you. Go to www.universalorlando.com to plan your visit today. Warning, binge mode contains adult content. That's right. Guys, you ever wonder what Fred and George were up to in the moments when they weren't on the page? Me too. We'll be doing a lot of wondering like that. And if that's not for you, there's honestly a lot of really good Harry Potter podcasts out there. (laughs) Please listen to this one, though. (laughs) Yeah, but listen to this one. Because we put a lot into this. One more warning. Yeah. Binge mode contains Spoilers. That's right. If you do not yet know what song Uncle Vernon hums as he works or why he's nailing up every crevice in his home. Yeah. Please proceed with extreme caution. A man loved drills. And now binge mode. He put Harry's wand back into its box and wrapped it in brown paper, still muttering. Curious, curious. Sorry, said Harry. But what's curious? Mr. Ollivander fixed Harry with his pale stare. I remember every wand I've ever sold, Mr. Potter. Every single wand. So it happens that the phoenix whose tail feather is in your wand gave another feather. Just one another. It is very curious indeed that you should be destined for this wand when its brother, why, its brother gave you that scar. Welcome to Binge Mode, Harry Potter! You're a podcast, Harry! I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today, now that he's finished looking at photos of Mr. Tibbles, Mr. Paws, Tufty, and Snowy with Mrs. Fig. Mrs. Fig. It's Ringer staff writer, your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Mal! It's time for cabbage and years-old chocolate cake. Mm. It's hot, but not the hottest, which means it's finally time for Binge Mode Harry Potter. And today, we're pulling out of King's Cross Station to begin our quest to explore not only the beautiful British countryside, but also every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Be you witch, a wizard, a muggle, a squib, fantastic beast, or someone trying to find them. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us, but five stars only. That's it. Just five. Please follow us on Twitter at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans. We await your digital owl posts. Save those howlers for someone else. On the premiere episode of Binge Mode Harry Potter, we are diving deep, deep, deep into the first five chapters of the series' first novel, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, requisite 
Spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. Guys, please pay attention to this closely, okay? While the first five chapters of Sorcerer's Stone are our primary focus today, we will be going deep on details from all seven books, eight movies, and the wider Potter canon. We are taking the entire story into account from the jump, okay? So if you're worried about Endgame spoilers, please finish up and then rejoin us. We will be talking about it all. From the jump, even as we stay tethered as best we can to a specific moment in time. If you listen to Game of Thrones pod, you will be familiar with that approach. Yes. So, count three up and two across and tap that brick with your umbrella. Because it's time to head to Diagon Alley. Jason? Yes. When the binge heads woke up on the dull gray Monday, our podcast starts. There was nothing about the cloudy sky outside to suggest that strange and mysterious things would soon be happening all over the studio. So let's offer a brief refresher on what actually happened in the first five chapters of Sorcerer's Stone, J.K. Rowling's debut novel, which was first published on June 26, 1997 in England as Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. By climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine of plot, the Hogwarts Express. Chapter one. The boy who lived, Vernon and Petunia Dursley, are a normal couple living a normal life. And they are utterly dedicated to normalcy. They live at number four, Privet Drive, with their son, Dudley. Petunia's sister, Lily, is married to a man named James Potter. The Dursleys, for some reason, consider the Potter strange. And to the Dursleys, strangeness is disturbing. Vernon. In his travels to and from work one day, sees and hears strange things. Something about the Potters and their son Harry and the disappearance of someone called you-know-who. He agonizes over whether that Harry Potter might be his nephew. Could his name be Harold? (laughs) (laughs) That night, Albus Dumbledore arrives outside number four, Privet Drive, and begins conversing with the cat, who's been loitering outside the Dursley home for some time. That cat turns into Minerva McGonagall. McGonagall and Dumbledore talk about recent events, events so momentous that even the muggles have noticed something strange going on. It's on their news! What is this? (laughs) All these owls shooting stars. Dumbledore confirms the rumors that McGonagall has heard. The dark wizard Voldemort, who has been terrorizing the magical community for 11 years, found Lily and James Potter in Godric's Hollow and killed them. But, aha, when the Dark Lord tried to murder their young son, Harry, he failed. Harry survived. Voldemort vanished. Dumbledore has come to place Harry into the Dursley's care. A tearful Rubius Hagrid, a half-giant, arrives with Harry, a bundle, in his arms. They leave Harry, Dumbledore's explanatory letter tucked in his arms and a lightning-shaped cut adorning his forehead on the porch. Chapter 2, The Vanishing Glass, 10 years later. 10 really shitty years for our guy Harry Potter at number 4 Privet Drive. Tough stuff for Harry. Very tough. Where the Dursleys treat him with malicious neglect. He sleeps in a spider-filled cupboard under the stairs. The Dursleys are treating Dudley to a birthday trip to the zoo and 39 presents. You know, normal stuff. He counted them. Due to a sitter snafu, she was injured, you know, stuff happens, they're forced to take Harry along. At the zoo, Harry speaks what we'll come to learn is parcel tongue with a snake from Brazil and, under stress from Dudley's bullying, accidentally makes the glass of the snake's enclosure vanish. 
Chapter three, the letters from no one. Something soon brightens young Harry's spirits. A letter arrives for him. This is exceedingly unusual because nobody ever writes to Harry. Who would be doing so now? And who would address the envelope that specifically? His cupboard is on the address. Vernon keeps the letter from Harry, but no matter what Vernon does, the post just keeps coming. Letters begin entering the home through window cracks, inside eggs, shooting out of the chimney. Vernon is apoplectic and forces the entire family to hit the road to try to escape the letters. Eventually, they end up in a tiny shack on a rock in the middle of the sea. It's a stormy night. And at the stroke of midnight, as Harry's 11th birthday arrives, there is a shuddering knock at the door. Chapter four, Keeper of the Keys. It's Hagrid. Yeah, it is. Gonna make some tea for us. Wouldn't say no to something stronger. Move over, your lump. He finally <laughs> delivers Harry's letter because Harry couldn't grab any of the 2,000 letters that were shooting out of the chimney in the <laughs> Sorcerer's Stone movie. Anyway, he finally delivers Harry's letter and some life-altering news. You're a wizard, Harry. Hagrid is stunned, absolutely stunned by how little Harry knows about who he is and his own place in wizarding culture. You're famous, Hagrid tells Harry. Harry, struggling to process everything Hagrid is telling him after a life spent thinking his parents died in a car crash, finally opens his letter. It's an invitation to attend Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, where Hagrid is keeper of the keys and grounds. The Dursleys try to stand in Harry's way, and in so doing, revealing that they've kept him in the dark about his true identity all this time. Hagrid rewards this treachery and a misguided knock against Hagrid's idol, Dumbledore, by giving Dudley, already so pig-like, a tale which takes the Dursleys like a month to get removed. <laughs> you know, they're busy. Also, Hagrid took the boat, so who knows how long they were <laughs> yeah. stuck in the middle of the sea. <laughs> Not easy to get back to the mainland. Chapter five, Diagon Alley. Yes. It wasn't a dream, guys. Harry is a wizard, and Hagrid is taking him to get his school supplies. But how will Harry purchase all the strange new items he needs? Not a problem, actually, because, guys, Harry is fucking loaded. Yeah. His parents bequeathed him a fortune, which is stored in a vault in Gringotts, the Goblin Run Love bank. bank. Love a Goblin Bank. <laughs> Love a Wizarding Bank. Everybody does. Located in Diagon Alley, which is hidden via magic in the heart of London. At the Leaky Cauldron, the local wizarding pub that hides the entrance to Diagon Alley, Harry meets, among others, the exceedingly nervous Professor Quirrell. Why would he be nervous? Not wearing the turban yet. Oh, that's right. Not wearing the turban yet. And he and Harry can touch, so not yet possessed. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Again, we're spoiling not only this entire yeah. book, but the entire series. Right. So you've been warned. Quirrell, Hogwarts' current defense against the dark arts professor. Harry also meets a loathsome boy we will come to know as Draco Malfoy in later chapters, who quickly makes Harry doubt his place in this new universe. But there's joy, too. Hagrid buys Harry a snowy owl for his birthday. Protect Edwig! That ends badly, but we'll just swear that. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm not ready to okay. face that pain yet. The day ends at Ollivander's wand shop, where, curiously, yes, curious, curious. curious, a wand with a phoenix feather core chooses Harry as its owner, a wand whose brother gave him his scar. Hagrid gives Harry, who is already feeling the burden of expectations, a pep talk and a train ticket for the Hogwarts Express, which is set to depart September 1st from King's Cross Station. Now. Yeah. 
don't ask questions. Oh, okay. I thought this would be more of like a collaborative. No. <laughs> that was the first rule for a quiet life with our podcast producers. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters one through five of Sorcerer's Stone is discovery. Chapters one through five are a journey of discovery. You could say that the whole series is, but particularly that first five chapters, our introduction into this story and Harry's introduction into this incredible world. And it's a journey from the everyday reality of the muggles into the magical realm. It's notable, I think very notable, very interesting, and, and just shows you like what a crafts person JK is, that the story begins from the perspective of the Dursleys. Yes. Strange choice if you think about it. After all, how much more normal can you get for a story that's totally about magic? Vernon and Petunia aren't just ordinary. They are aggressively ordinary. They aspire to extreme ordinariness, and they are absolutely disgusted by anything out of the ordinary. When Vernon hears the mention of Harry Potter, he's like, should I tell Petunia about it? No, she would, Can't risk it. She would be too upset. The entire story opens with this description. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. They were the last people you'd expect to be involved in anything strange or mysterious because they didn't hold with such nonsense. They live in fear of discovery of being found out of anyone unearthing their connection to the Potters and questioning how perfectly unremarkable they are in their lives. They don't want to open their minds and they certainly don't want to open their lives to other people's inspection. They just want to float by. There could be no better place to start than with the Dursleys, no better contrast to establish that we and Harry will come to discover. And it is we. Yes. It is this collective. Let's consider this passage, one of our favorites, subtle though it is, mm. from the opening pages. When Mr. and Mrs. Dursley woke up on the dull, gray Tuesday, our story starts. There was nothing about the cloudy sky outside to suggest that strange and mysterious things would soon be happening all over the country. Our story. Right. With those two words, our story, J.K. Rowling brings the reader in fully, establishing the stakes. Like, it's not just about what the characters on the page are going to discover. It's about what you, the reader, will discover in turn. And the greatest magic, the reason that Jason and I are here with you today, talking about this, doing this podcast, is because the greatest magic is sharing a special story, falling so deeply into a world that someone else built that the world you actually inhabit transforms around you. Yeah. And then realizing when you look around that other people are experiencing that transformation too. That is a gift. And in the first chapter with those two words, our story, JKR makes the close-minded seem small, insignificant, and opens up a portal for everybody else. She establishes right away that this isn't going to be a story for the Dursley-ish boars out there. This is a story for people who want to find something to believe in, for people who want to discover. We see the magical community celebration of Voldemort's temporary, spoiler, <laughs> <laughs> devised through the eyes of muggles, particularly Vernon, flocks of owls flying hither and yon. What? No one has ever seen this type of movement by owls. I would think that's wonderful. That's actually maybe Incredible. my favorite part of the first movie is just all the owls. Love an owl. Love an owl. Love a good owl. <laughs> Love an owl. The first mention of you-know-who uttered by a man in a violet cloak, people in strange clothes gathering to exchange excited whispers. Whispers about the Potters, their son Harry, 
a stoic cat who will not shoo and who might, maybe, I've been reading a map and a street sign. Love cats. Love cats. (laughs) Downpours of shooting stars, shouts to Daedalus. These incidents, seen through the narrative voice of the Dursley, generate a feeling of mystery. More than that, they create a feeling of magic lurking just beneath the things that the Dursleys, and we see every day. And I think if there's one reason that this story resonated so strongly with young readers, it's that idea that the world of imagination and magic is really just out there in all the things that you see every day, right? That is such a great idea, and she executes it so well with that slow calibration of narrative voice from the Vernons and the Muggle perspective to Harry, to Harry being confused about what's happening to eventually, like, diagonally and everything that comes after. It's an incredible gift to give to people. Yeah. Just the idea of possibility. Right. And it doesn't matter if you read the story and you think... Wow, I wonder if I'm the chosen one. Right. That's not it's not point. even about that. It's I wonder if there is something more. That's it. Something waiting for me, literally maybe just behind that brick wall yeah. that I hadn't seen before just because nobody ever told me to look. Right. Like that is such an exciting thing for people of any age, but to your point, for younger readers, the idea that the world around you has more to offer than you understand in a given moment yeah. is the kind of sustaining thing that can really alter your entire life. And there's also an embrace of strangeness. You know, you think of how much peer pressure means to you when you're a kid, conformity, and how much being cast outside of a certain group can be painful. I mean, it's really a thing that you forget as you get older. But I think that there's something really so hopeful about the way JK and this story embrace weirdness, embrace strangeness, strange dress, strange customs, strange events, people acting in different ways as not something that's disturbing or bad or weird, but as something that's potentially a source of magic. Right. Different isn't bad. Different is worth celebrating. That's amazing. But Vernon, no, pesky old Vernon, he doesn't see that possibility that we see, that readers see. Just let me go to work and sell drills and come home. I got drills to move. I got to sell them drills. (laughs) He sees threats. He sees a violation of nature and normalcy. This man, think about this. He works on the ninth floor of his office building. But despite the fact that he, in theory, has a room with a view, he chooses to sit with his back to the window, closing himself off. Those tiny, tiny details in the story that always stand out to me, that show how fully J.K.R. understands the characters that she's crafted. Of course, Vernon Dursley is a man who would choose not to look out the window at work. Of course. Think of the very street on which the Dursleys live, Privet Drive. I always thought, you know, it sounds like private, doesn't it? This idea that they carry around, not the sense of possibility and hope, but the sense of crippling fear and shame. J.K. Rowling has explained in a Pottermore post that She named the street after the privet bush, which surrounds many British homes. So she deliberately sought to convey that something standard, something typical, something used to enclose is where these people would want to be. It's just so perfect. Why the number four? Also from Pottermore, she said, this is a quote, for no very good reason, I have never been fond of the number four, which has always struck wow. me as a rather hard and unforgiving number, which is why I slapped it on the Dursley's front door. And how about little whinging, the town? Well, you know, among the Brits, whinging means whining, yeah. complaining. All of these little details help create this sense of a 
fully realized character in a fully realized world. Vernon, no stranger to whinging? No, not at all. One of the great small details from Vernon's early internal angst is he tries to talk himself down, Mm -hmm. quiet the bubbling fear by telling himself he was sure there were lots of people (laughs) called Potter who had a son called Harry. That's actually, you know, it's not unfair to think that. Cute Petunia, Harry. Nasty (laughs) common name if you ask me. Like, Dudley, come on. Vernon's suspicion that Harry Potter isn't an unusual name is actually probably true. It's one of JKR's many subtle nods to how ordinary Harry could have been right. if he hadn't cared to discover what awaited him. None of us are only what someone else names us or makes us. We're what we choose to be. How shook is Verno? I love that you call him Verno. It's <laughs> fucking amazing. <laughs> Quote, he was rattled. He hurried to his car and set off for home, hoping he was imagining things, which he had never hoped before because he didn't approve of imagination. Just don't imagine, guys. <laughs> How perfect. How very telling. What is magic, guys, if not the gift of imagination? And what is misery if not the failure to be able to open up your mind and your heart? We are seeing instantly how the Dursleys are being positioned as the stark, stark contrast to yes. who Harry will quickly become and who all these other people in this world will be. By the time we meet Dumbledore and McGonagall later in the opening chapter, we're already aching to know more about these people, about this figure Voldemort who murdered Harry's parents, about how Harry survived, about how Dumbledore appears and vanishes and makes the lights go out, about how McGonagall could turn into a cat. Imagine being able to turn into a cat. It'd be pretty great. I was actually thinking about this. A cat is so useful because you can go anywhere and nobody's really looking at you. It's not like a deer or something. Right, turning into a stag uh, is actually kind of limiting. Or a rat where it's like, (laughs) kill that thing now. Oh, yeah. A cat, if you see it, you're like, oh, there's a cute cat. But you're not like, why is there a cat here? Cats are everywhere. It's fine. Love them. Anyway. (laughs) McGonagall is positioned interestingly. She... Wants to know more, seeks clarity from Dumbledore and the swirling rumors, but she also fears discovery by the muggles. A fine thing it would be on the very day you know who seems... I can't do the Scottish accent. Do I'm it. sorry. Try. I can't do it. Do it. I find do it. I, I, need to, I need a little bit more. Potter. Wait, can we hear your... Potter. Can we hear your uh, your Sorcia Ronan Irish real quick? Uh, I'll do, I'll do my, my Seamus. <laughs> well, I'm half and half. <laughs> I'm half and half. Your mom's a witch. My dad's a mogul. Anyway, she says... <laughs> A fine thing it would be if, on the very day you know who seems to have disappeared at last, the muggles found out about us all. And we begin to understand what being a witch or a wizard means for muggle-born or muggle-raised wizards like Harry. That once an awakening and, and an invitation to possibility, but also a cloistered and sequestered life. Yes. Where you have to live separately from the world that you once knew. I love that dissonance. Yeah. Opt in to something you never knew existed, right. to things you never even conceived of. That's right. And do it quietly. That's right. <laughs> even in this Dumbledore McGonagall section, J.K.R. continues to occupy this sort of distant narrative voice that is associated with the Dursley and Muggle perspective. You know, we're getting more answers. We're meeting witches and wizards. We're gaining insights. We're finally getting some information. But we don't really know anything yet. Neither does Harry. We're not seeing this through his eyes yet. So the effect, in essence, we might as well be standing in Vernon's shoes. Like, we don't understand. We don't have the tools yet or the capacity to process what we're learning. Creating this fully realized world that adheres to its own internal logic and rules. It's necessary 
in fantasy and science fiction. This is a theme that we return to yes. a lot as we talk about Absolutely. stories. You must be able to do that. Yeah. One thing that befalls bad or boring or limited fantasy stories is too much exposition, too much overt, heavy-handed explaining about how exactly it all works. Like, imagine if she went into... McGonagall was an animagus, right. which is a blah, 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 blah. And I did it like, yes. Part of what makes the Harry Potter series so iconic and such a favorite of ours is that she trusts yes. the audience to be intrigued and not perplexed, you know, to ferociously ask the right questions, just as Harry will start to in the coming chapters, but also to patiently await answers, you know, to soak up everything, but to also say, I understand that there's some stuff that I'm going to have to wait that I will only understand right. with the benefit of time. And part of this is generated by Dumbledore's caginess, which becomes more and more evident the more times you read this story, right? Oh, yes. But we, but we glimpse it right from the jump. And it will come to define Harry's journey, his battle against evil. And this series, as much as anything else, when McGonagall says, I suppose he really has gone, Dumbledore, and Dumbledore says it certainly seems so, we quickly discover more. McGonagall and countless others fear saying Voldemort's name. But Dumbledore does not, because as McGonagall explains, he's different. Dumbledore says, you flatter me. Voldemort has powers I will never have. And McGonagall says, only because you are too, well, noble to use them. Indeed. Dumbledore says, it's lucky it's dark. I haven't blushed so much since Madame Pomfrey told me she liked my new earmuffs. Do you like my new ring? Why is my hand <laughs> rotting? It'll be a long time before we discover the heart of this matter and, and Dumbledore's relationship to power. But already we're discovering how the rest of the wizarding world views him and positions him. And it's also notable in that conversation how little McGonagall knows. Yes. Part of what makes this such a rich story is things like that, how yeah. you can return to the text time and time and time again, and there's always something rewarding there waiting for you. Yes. Either something new to discover or another layer to pull back. It's just really thrilling. Yeah. We quickly discover something else as well. The dissonance that is so often at play in the story as in life itself. What is happening right now in this moment in the story? Witches and wizards across the land are cheering Voldemort's downfall. These are the people that Vernon Dursley sees whooping on the street, the shooting stars that are on the newscast. But what does that inherently on some level mean? It means that people are also cheering James and Lily's death. Yeah. Now, of course, we don't mean that they are doing that in literal terms. They're not celebrating that James and Lily are dead. But in a sense, one thing amounts to the other. These Things are inextricably linked. And that is a core theme in the story. This is something that readers and Harry will discover. Light and dark are tied up with each other. You cannot have one without the other. You can't escape the sorrow when embracing the joy. And what happened when Lily and James fell, McGonagall says. That's not all. And notice again how little McGonagall knows. They're saying he tried to kill the Potter's son, Harry, but he couldn't. He couldn't kill that little boy. No one knows why or how, but they're saying that when he couldn't kill Harry Potter, Voldemort's power somehow broke. And that's why he's gone right away the central mysteries. What happened when Voldemort tried to kill Harry? Why didn't it work? Why did he want to kill Harry? What happened to him when the curse failed? And Gondolka continues. But how in the name of heaven did Harry survive? And Dumbledore says, we can only guess. We may never know. Mm -hmm. 
Dumbledore also, I, I love that he's just kind of like, Who's, I haven't been thinking about this much. I haven't thought about this at all. I wonder how. Hmm. Chapter one, book one, and already Dumbledore is withholding information, measuring his words, even with his closest, closest confidants, yes. right? He knows so much more already than he's letting on about Lily's sacrifice. Why Voldemort went to the Potters that night, his suspicions regarding Voldemort's current state. And yet, this is such a perfect technique on JKR's part, not only to enhance Dumbledore's ultimate character arc, because you read this the first time and you're like, what a purely heroic paragon of good this man is, a mentor that I would want for myself. Right. The truth is ultimately much more interesting. Much, much, much more interesting. And it's seated there right at the beginning. Harry grew up learning not to ask questions. The reader consuming this tale can't help it. You can't. Yes. The thirst to discover is ever present. Ever present. In this section where Dumbledore tells McGonagall that he plans to place Harry in the care of the Dursleys and leave a letter. Ah, guys. That's right. Remember my last. Do you have a Howler voice you'd like to debut here? Like, Remember my last. Remember my last. <laughs> Rowling gets meta. Yeah. Toying with the idea of discovery and mystery versus explanation. McGonagall says, really, Dumbledore, you think you can explain all this in a letter? And hey, it's a fair point. It's a pretty, <laughs> it's tough. It is a fair point. <laughs> it's a tough stuff right Good there. Good note, McGonagall. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley, <laughs> it all started about 40 years ago. And <laughs> She continues. These people will never understand him. Again, she is right. He'll be famous, a legend. I wouldn't be surprised if today was known as Harry Potter Day in the future. Every day is Harry Potter yeah, Day right. to us, guys. There will be books written about Indeed Harry. There will. <laughs> You're reading it now. Every child in our world will know his name. Oh, this is all a, true. What an incredible flex by J.K. Rowling. And Dumbledore responds, exactly. It would be enough to turn any boy's head. Famous before he can walk and talk. Famous for something he won't even remember. Can't you see how much better off he'll be growing up away from all of that until he's ready to take it? I mean, you know, listen, you're the boss, buddy. It would have been cool to have a discussion about this, but let's go with this now since this is what's happening tonight. This is Rowling's innovation, by the way. Fantasy stories are rife with this trope, orphans who are actually royalty, A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones, orphans who harbor special powers, Star Wars, and any number of other fantasy stories. But J.K.R.'s twist on this trope is making Harry famous, known throughout this secretive community for a thing he didn't actually do on purpose. He doesn't even realize what happened. Harry begins our story knowing nothing of himself, his family, or wizarding culture. What a shock it will be to find that the magical community that he so desperately wants to enter and be part of already thinks it knows everything about him. It's, it's such a great a, twist on it. It is. It's such a smart repositioning. Yes. So often the hero's journey centers on somebody desperate to prove yes. his or her worth. Exactly. And certainly Harry will have moments where that is true for him. Right. But initially his origin story is... The antithesis of that, it's doubt. It's feeling like there has been some sort of mistake. Yes. This can't possibly be this right. Can't be, right? You, me? Do you have the right Harry Potter? But who determines when Harry is ready to, as Dumbledore says, take it? Is that for Dumbledore to decide in this moment? Dumbledore would say yes. Yes. I will decide that, Dumbledore. Thank you. That's Dumbledore <laughs> speaking to himself saying yes. 
in this moment, which again, on first read, it seems so well-intentioned and innocuous, a defining theme for the entire story is established. Dumbledore deciding what's best for Harry and when, Dumbledore deciding who knows what and when. Right. We cannot know at this point, consuming this tale for the first time, what that decision will cost or why Dumbledore is even making it. But as he will tell Harry in Order of the Phoenix, he knew right then, right then, that in some ways he was condemning Harry to 10 dark and difficult years, as he puts it. This, like really everything else of note in the story, is a choice. And as we will later learn, Dumbledore, even though he doesn't reveal this truth to McGonagall at the moment, is making a choice to, above all else, seal the protective magic of Lily Potter's sacrifice. Lily died for her son. And Dumbledore, unlike Voldemort, understands how potent that kind of magic is. And he chooses, above all else, to seal that protective magic by placing Harry where Lily's blood dwells. But there is a cost to that choice. There is always a cost. One of those for Harry is physical, his scar. Yes. From the story. Under a tuft of jet black hair over his forehead, they could see a curiously shaped cut like a bolt of lightning. Mm -hmm. where? Whispered Professor McGonagall. Yes, said Dumbledore. You'll have that scar forever. Could you do something about it, Dumbledore? Could you do something about it, Dumbledore? I can't. Do, I can't do Scottish. I'm sorry. I'm gonna You're do gonna, weird Irish. Listen, I'm gonna get better. This is about taking it's journeys journey. together, journey. and we're on this journey <laughs> with you. <laughs> Even if I could, I wouldn't. Scars can come in handy. Ah. Oh. Indeed, it's chapter one, and we're getting breadcrumbs about the eventual Horcrux plot that will determine yes. the end game. By the way. Aside, Horcruxes. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps JK's most influential mm. addition to the storytelling canon. I mean, like, Infinity War is basically a Horcrux hunt. Also, season two of Stranger season Things two of Stranger has an Things. incredible amount of, like, the mind meld that stems it's from the... It's just great to yeah. see this stuff seep into the culture. Anyway. It's chapter one. We're getting these breadcrumbs. What brilliant plotting and structuring. And that's the thing when you reread this, just the stuff that she has in there that is planting the seed for something that will blossom books later is incredible. We and Harry will discover so much more about the truth of this in time. Colonels are already there. They are. And the first chapter's closing paragraph is a really, really beautiful launching pad into the rest of the story, but it's also this beautiful reminder of the weight of the unknown, you know, of the pull of a destiny waiting to be discovered, of the possibility yes. of being lifted out of your routine and thrust into something totally surreal. It goes, a breeze ruffled the neat hedges of Privet Drive, which lay silent and tidy under the inky sky, the very last place you would expect astonishing things to happen. Oh, getting emotional. Here it goes. Here we go. 30 minutes into the first pod. <laughs> Harry Potter rolled over inside his blankets without waking up. One small hand closed on the letter beside him and he slept on, not knowing he was special, not knowing he was famous, not knowing he would be woken in a few hours' time by Mrs. Dursley's scream as she opened the front door to put out the milk bottles, nor that he would spend the next few weeks being prodded and pinched by his cousin Dudley. He couldn't know that at this very moment, people meeting in secret all over the country were holding up their glasses and saying, in hushed voices, 
to Harry Potter, the boy who lived. It's incredible. It's a great moment Chills. in the audiobooks also. Oh. Chapter two, The Vanishing Glass yes. by chapter two. Take me to the zoo. Let's go to the zoo. I love a zoo <laughs> trip, guys. By chapter two, the narrative voice is finally Harry's. We've taken another step on our journey of discovery, this time closer to our hero. Here's an example. Harry woke with a start. His aunt rapped on the door again. Up, she screeched. Harry heard her walking toward the kitchen and then the sound of the frying pan being put on the stove. He rolled onto his back and tried to remember the dream he had been having. It had been a good one. There had been a flying motorcycle in it. He had a funny feeling he'd had that same dream before. Notice the word choice here, screeched. That's how Harry would describe the voice of his aunt, surely. And the way J.K. gives us access to Harry's senses and thoughts, but crucially doesn't actually put us into his head yet. That is coming. One of the characteristics of this series is the way we as readers get further and further into Harry's thoughts as the books progress. It's it's really a journey into Harry's mind. I mean, yes. we start here with this kind of distant narrative voice that gets closer and closer to the point where later we're doing battle within his memories. From here on out, and with some rare and notable exceptions, the story unfolds from Harry's perspective. Harry is... In essence, a ghost in his own home, in his own life. It's a quote. The room held no sign at all that another boy lived in the house, too. Imagine that. Yeah. No sign that he is an occupant of his own home. He sleeps in the cupboard under the stairs. He's crammed away in this spider-filled space that, you know, in a typical home would be full of boots and coats and mops. Not people. There is this real Dickensian quality to this casting that kind of instantly burrows Harry into the reader's heart. How can you not feel affection for him and this desire to protect him when you see what his life is like? You know, Harry did not grow up big-headed, drunk on fame, high on his own legend. He grew up in, a, in essence, a prison of neglect. He is small and skinny and quick. He's forced to wear Dudley's huge hand-me-downs. He's so desperate for something to like about himself and about his life that he can't help but ask questions about how he got his scar. That's the one thing that when he looks at himself, he's like, ah, I'm into this. I want to know more. But to no avail, don't ask questions. That was the first rule for a quiet life with the Dursleys. In other words, don't try to discover. But strange things just happen to Harry. His hair grows back after an embarrassing trim, which I think is described as something like a monk's tonsure cut. Yeah. A sweater he wants to avoid wearing shrinks. He winds up atop the school kitchen roof when he's fleeing from Dudley and his gang of bullies. He dreams of a flying motorcycle. And after chatting with a boa constrictor, chatting, having a legitimate conversation with a snake, he makes the glass of the snake's case vanish. Now, the incident with the boa constrictor is, of course, some foreshadowing about Harry's parcel tongue ability, shared powers with Voldemort. Harry's brief conversation with the snake, though, is also something pretty poignant. It marks mm -hmm. the first time in his life Legitimately in his life that he's had a connection with another creature, human or otherwise, or even with his true self. This specimen was bred in the zoo, Harry reads, and in a way he was too. What a lonely existence of the snake, he thinks. He wouldn't have been surprised if it had died of boredom itself. No company except stupid people drumming their fingers on the glass trying to disturb it all day long. It was worse than having a cupboard as a bedroom where the only visitor was Aunt Petunia hammering on the door to wake you up. That is heartbreaking. Absolutely gutting. Harry can't remember his parents, and the Dursleys won't let him ask about them. He has only one memory that relates to them, a blinding green flash and a burning pain in his forehead. How desperate is he for some connection to anyone? 
quote, sometimes he thought or maybe hoped that strangers in the street seemed to know him. Very strange strangers they were too. Harry is the most legendary person in a world he doesn't yet know exists, but he's also utterly alone. And now a brief break for a word from one of our sponsors. Audiobooks are a great sidekick for summer activities like hiking, running, road tripping, enjoying downtime outdoors, and more. And with the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet, wow, Audible lets you fill your summer with more stories. Like... Uh, how about Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, the Jim Dale Audible version? It's the longest book in the series. It's great to listen to. Jim Dale is a wonderful, soothing voice, and he acts out all the different parts. It's actually quite wonderful. Guys, you're going to be listening to a lot of Binge Mode this summer, and hopefully this fall, and hopefully forever. Why don't you listen to Harry Potter on Audible, too? Hear the magic come to life. As an Audible member, you, yes, you, will get a credit every month. Good for any audiobook, regardless of price. Unused credits roll over to the next month, and if you didn't like your audiobook, you can exchange it. No questions asked. Plus, your books are yours to keep. Go back and re-listen anytime, even if you cancel your membership. Better yet, you can switch seamlessly between devices. Ah, picking huge. Up, picking up exactly where you left off, whether it's on your phone, through your car, from your tablet, or at home on an Amazon Echo. Shouts to WhisperSync. Love that. Love that. Start a 30-day trial, and your first audiobook is free. Wow. Just go to audible.com slash binge or text binge to 500-500. That's audible. A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash B-I-N-G-E. Or text BINGE to 500-500. You can do it with audiobooks. And now back to Binge Mode. Chapter three. Letters yes. from no one. Everything begins to change when Harry's first letter arrives. And this is so fitting because what is a letter if not a portal into someone else's mind, into some other possibility than what was in front of your face the prior moment? The passage goes, Harry picked it up and stared at it, his heart twanging like a giant elastic band. No one ever in his whole life had written to him. Oh, God. So sad. It is addressed as specifically as it could possibly be to Mr. H. Potter, the cupboard under the stairs for Privet Jive, Little Whinging, Surrey. This is for the first time in Harry's life he has reason to believe that somebody actually knows who and where he is. That, in other words, somebody cares. And the Dursleys, who are terrified about the magical world's intrusion into their deliberately unmagical existence, are freaking out. Guys, they're freaking out. And they decide to give Harry a little housing upgrade. Maybe that'll help. Sure. You know? Love the part where Petunia's like, are they watching us? Watching? Spying? <laughs> <laughs> Dudley's second bedroom, which is littered with broken toys and gadgets. There's a great description that the books are the only things that look like they haven't been touched. Yeah. But Harry is not joyous because, as the passage goes, yesterday he'd have given anything to be up here. Today, he'd rather be back in his cupboard with that letter than up here without it. Nothing matters more than that letter because that letter represents discovering who wants to communicate with him, who cares that he's alive, who believes that he deserves to hear what they have to say. Good news, are <laughs> The letters keep coming. Vernon begins to go insane. True descent into madness. 
Just let him read the freaking letter, my guy. The letters are disruptions, both of the Dursley's carefully managed existence and of Harry's belief that he's totally alone. And Vernon's relentless determination to stand between Harry and his letters plays as comedy. The story says, he um, tiptoed through the tulips as he worked and jumped at small noises. That always makes me laugh so much. She has such a gift for that kind of tiny description. It's perfect. But it's also a complete indictment of the Dursley's existence. Vernon and Petunia live in fear of people discovering their secret the potters, that they're related to them, that they were strange in some way and in a way that compromises their life. So in order to protect that life, he totally uproots it, goes to live in a hut on a rock in the middle of the sea with nothing but crisps and bananas and a rifle. How are you going to get to your job selling drills, Vernon? His desperation to stand between Harry and enlightenment comes at the expense of the very things Vernon claims he wants to protect. Chapter four, the keeper of the keys. Harry and Hagrid together at last! Harry's fingers are trembling as Hagrid hands him his birthday cake. Last year for his birthday, the Dursleys had given Harry a coat hanger and some socks. The socks, by the way, guys, fun little nugget here. Those are the same socks that Harry will eventually use to smother the sneakoscope that Ron gifts to him and then later that he gifts to Dobby. Beautiful. This moment, Getting this cake from Hagrid, this is the first time that Harry has experienced real affection. And it's in essence from a stranger. Obviously, Hagrid has met Harry before, but Harry doesn't have a real full memory of that. A stranger who came and pursued him and found him in the middle of the sea. Who wouldn't want to discover more about that? And in this chapter, Harry discovers the mind-blowing truth. That's right. Harry, you're a wizard. It is the truth behind everything. And in no particular order, Harry discovers the existence of Hogwarts and the entire hidden magical world that he's a wizard, a wizard, and that his parents were also magical, that he and his parents are famous, the role of owls, what muggle means, and that his belief that his parents died in a car crash was a lie. They, turns out, were murdered by the arch-dark wizard Voldemort, a villain so terrifying that even his name is forbidden to be spoken. Let's go through kind of all of that. Yeah. Haggard says, you'll know all about Hogwarts, of yeah, course. Yeah, I'll know all about Hogwarts, of course. <laughs> now, think of how alienating that moment could have been for Harry. Let's compare it, for example, to a scene that will play out in the next chapter when the boy, who we will come to learn in later chapters, is Draco Malfoy, makes Harry feel ignorant, stupid, completely out of place and ill-informed. Hagrid despite being really completely flummoxed by how little Harry knows and totally uncomfortable with his role that he now has to occupy as the revealer, still makes Harry feel welcome somehow, both in this new world and welcome, maybe just as importantly, to keep asking questions, to keep trying to learn more. Do you mean to tell me that this boy, this boy knows nothing about anything? Harry thought this was going a bit far. He'd been to school <laughs> after all, and his marks weren't bad. Love that. I know some things, he said. I can, you know, do math and stuff. But Hagrid simply waved his hand and said, about our world, I mean, your world, my world, your parents' world, our world, your world. Think of the transformative power of those simple words. This is a kid who didn't believe that he belonged any place. Right. Think of what these words achieve. Harry, who spent the past decade feeling alone, unwanted, less than suddenly realizes that he's none of these things. There's a place for him, a place where he can be part of an hour for the first time. I didn't expect this. Hagrid definitely was not ready to be like, oh, I got to have the talk with you. 
again, maybe like a little more help from Dumbledore here. This is what I'm saying. Like, just Albus. Wait, give the guy, no, I gotta, you know, give I him gotta, a little more info. I got to do the talk. <laughs> and Harry is not just going to be right. a part of an hour of this new world. He is a key part, a central part. But you must know about your mom and dad. I mean, they're famous. You're famous. <laughs> On the heels of this reveal. Harry also has to soak up the truth of the Dursleys' deception. And it's not like he thought they were great people, but still, this hurts. Uncle Vernon says we swore when we took him in. We'd put a stop to that rubbish. Swore we'd stamp it out of him. Wizard indeed. And Harry's, you know, he's upset. Of course, you knew. He says you knew I'm a, a wizard. And then we get one of Petunia's signature trips down memory lane here. Oh, God. Knew. This whole thing. Shrieked Aunt Petunia suddenly. Knew, of course we knew. How could you not be my dratted sister being what she was? And she goes on to call her sister Lily, Harry's mother, a freak. And the truth of their deaths is the next thing that Harry discovers. Harry says, you told me they died in a car crash. Hagrid, car crash? How could a car crash kill Lily and James Potter? It's an outrage, a scandal. Harry Potter not knowing his own story when every kid in our world knows his name. Every kid, everyone knows who this guy is. The way J.K.R. established this contrast between Harry's shrouded existence and his position in the wider wizarding world is so good. As is the way that she sets up Hagrid to simultaneously aid Harry's initial process of discovery and keep her protagonist and the reader alike kind of on the hook, really desperate for more information and more clarity. That's a tough balance to strike. And he says, well, it's best you know as much as I can tell you. Mind, I can't tell you everything. It's a great mystery, parts of it. And that right there is the promise of some information now, but plenty more future discovery for the reader and Harry alike. Everything Hagrid says, Harry greets with a follow-up. He's like a starving man. Every detail Hagrid provides is sustenance. And then we get to Moldy Voldy himself. Good old Moldy Voldy. It's almost impossible for fantasy stories in some form or fashion to avoid deus ex machina pitfalls. But one of the reasons we love Harry Potter so much is that there are so many moments you can point to early on and say, oh, wow, J.K. really had this. She had this planned out. It was there. Yes. The way Hagrid positions what happened between Harry and Voldemort at Godric's Hollow is as central to that feeling as anything else in this story. Gulping gargoyles, Harry. People are still scared. Blimey. This is difficult. Blimey. See, there are wizards who went bad. As bad as you could go. Worse. Worse than worse. His name was... Worse than worse. Imagine that. This is a very, very early hint that what Dumbledore will come in Half-Blood Prince to describe as Voldemort's efforts to push beyond, quote, usual evil. This is, in other words, an extremely early Horcrux soul-shredding illusion. Reckon Dumbledore, the only one you know who was afraid of, didn't dare try taking the school, not just then anyway. Harry and the reader alike are again discovering the truth of the Dumbledore-Voldemort rivalry and of Dumbledore's rare stature in the wizarding world. Maybe he thought he could persuade him, Hagrid continues. Maybe he just wanted him out of the way. All anyone knows is he turned up in the village where you was all living. Great grammar, Hagrid. On Halloween 10 years ago, he was just a year old. Okay, so not exactly, right? Yeah. Dumbledore and Snape know more than this. It's the prophecy. J.K.R. is positioning this core mystery, why did Voldemort pursue the Potters, as something that no one can explain. And the fact that that is not ultimately going to prove true is one of the story's great achievements because it makes who actually knows 
and what they did with that information and when and what the cost of those choices wind up being that much more impactful. This is one of JKR's what makes a good writer. She creates great characters. She's not afraid to let bad things happen to them. Yes. And she's not afraid to lie to you. No. She's not afraid to write a thing that isn't actually true in the course of the story. You know who killed him. But like, because that's life. That's life. And that's what's Not everybody has all the facts all the time. It's great. But they always think they do. That's right. (laughs) You know who killed him. And then, and this is the real mystery of the thing. He tried to kill you too. Wanted to make a clean job of it, I suppose. Or maybe he just liked killing by then. Of course, over the course of the series, we find out the truth. Harry wasn't the collateral damage. He was the target. He wanted to kill him because of the prophecy. For the first time, as Hagrid explains this all, Harry recalls a high, cold, cruel laugh. Quote, something very painful was going on in Harry's mind. He's starting to discover the truth of the event that defined the course of his life. And Harry just keeps asking questions. He is desperate to discover more, including, oh, hey, what happened to this Voldemort guy? Sounds like a dangerous fella. And Hagrid's answer here is key. Good question, Harry. Disappeared. Same night he tried to kill you. Makes you even more famous. That's the biggest mystery, see? He was getting more and more powerful. Why'd he go? Some say he died. Codswallop, in my opinion. Don't know if he had enough human left in him to die. Aha! Ah. He continues. Most of us reckon he's still out there somewhere, but he lost his powers. Too weak to carry on. Because something about you finished him, Harry. There's something going on that night he hadn't counted on. I don't know what it was. No one does. Well, but but something about you stumped him, all right? Another Horcrux illusion here with to know if he had enough human left in him to die. This is so early and so huge. JK, you're the best. Also, the prophecy. Lily's sacrifice. So many secrets to discover. So many hints to help us. And just more broadly than that, let's consider the difference between how Harry receives the news that he's a wizard and how Tom Riddle. received the same news when Dumbledore shared it with him at the orphanage, which is a memory we see in Half-Blood Prince, one of my all-time favorite chapters in the books and one of the most distressing (laughs) scenes in the movie. (laughs) Tom, young Tom, already thought he was special. He has just been waiting for this validation, the line from the book. I knew I was different. He whispered to his own quivering fingers. I knew I was special. Always, I knew there was something. Harry thinks there's been a mistake from the book. But Harry, instead of feeling pleased and proud, felt quite sure there had been a horrible mistake. A wizard? Him? How could he possibly be? And then he says to Hagrid, Hagrid, I think you must have made a mistake. I don't think I can be a wizard. Throughout the entire series, Harry and Voldemort, Harry and Tom Riddle, they will notice similarities between the two of them. Harry will harp on this. It will upset him deeply. The reader will focus on how many commonalities they share. Something like this. This difference in how they perceive discovering the truth of their identity, that matters so much more than the things they have in common. Chapter 5, Diagon Alley, we're here. To this point, Harry has learned about magic through a cloud of half-understanding. And aside from his parents has met, as far as he knows, only one magical person, Hagrid. In Diagon Alley, Harry, with both feet, enters the world of magic, his world, for the first time, and the journey begins in earnest. We get to see this all through his eyes. Harry thinks to himself, 
It was a dream. I dreamed a giant named Hagrid came to tell me I was going to school for wizards. When I open my eyes, I'll be at home in my cupboard. And just the way she phrases that and the context she uses, hearkening back to the ordinariness of the previous chapters, makes it seem ridiculous, right? It's like, what? That happened? That's crazy. But the world of the Dursleys and number four Privet Drive and the gloomy cupboard were actually the dream. That was the sleep world. Harry steps into Diagon Alley through the entrance in the leaky cauldron and awakens. Continuing from the book, Harry wished he had eight more eyes. He turned his head in every direction as they walked up the street, trying to look at everything at once. The shops, the things outside them, the people doing their shopping. Every single thing Harry learns and sees is a gift of discovery. Wizards have banks? <laughs> Hagrid also tells Harry a bit about the Ministry of Magic by taking a shot at it. Of course, those freaking bureaucrats pushing papers around or <laughs> the papers really pushing themselves around, but whatever. And then says, they wanted Dumbledore for minister, of course, but he'd never leave Hogwarts. Hagrid is on the surface telling us and Harry about institutions, but the truth, as we discover in time, much more complex. Dumbledore didn't trust himself at the levers of power. And again, J.K. tells us so much and yet hints at so much more. Harry also is discovering more about why wizards choose to live in secret. Hagrid doesn't really get why this is puzzling to Harry. Yeah. Why? Blimey, Harry, everyone be wanting magic solutions to their problems. <laughs> now nah, we're best left alone. Well, listen, as soon as you get into Hogwarts and you have that first feast and all the food appears, you're uh -huh. like, hey, guys, can we solve world hunger or something? Can we just solve it tonight? But as we'll learn in time. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. The food the whole exists. Thing, the food, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you don't actually make the food. Can we buy all this in London? Harry wonders aloud. He's looking at the school list. And Hagrid says, you know, hey. Glad you asked. If you know where to look. Yeah. In other words, if you know how to discover what is beneath the surface. And Harry's journey of discovery is on the most basic level about learning his true nature. It is also about discovering the place where he belongs. You know, he doesn't understand all of the things that he's seeing. How could he possibly? But he's found where he wants to be and what he wants to be. He's starting to find it. Again, part of what makes Harry such a compelling central figure is that on the one hand, he's so eager to embrace this. And on the other hand, he's paralyzed by doubts that are haunting him already. And as they will continue to haunt him for the duration of the series. At the end of this chapter, he'll say to Hagrid, everyone thinks I'm special, Professor Quirrell, Mr. Ollivander, but I don't know anything about magic at all. How can they expect great things? I'm famous, and I can't even remember what I'm famous for. Now, we'll talk more about Gringotts in a bit, but it's notable, too, how J.K.R. teases the mystery of what's in Vault 713, beginning Harry and Reader alike, teasing us with wanting to know more. Harry discovering his personal fortune, also no small thing, mind you. What's the you-know-what in Vault 713, Harry asked. Can't tell you that, said Hagrid mysteriously. Very secret. Hogwarts business. Dumbledore trusted me more than jobs worth to tell you that. Also, it has nothing to do with Nicholas Flamel. What? what did you <laughs> That's for later, but still. Let me tell you, Hagrid, not the guy you want to trust with the secrets. I love when McGonagall is waiting for Dumbledore and he's like, I assume Hagrid told you I was going to be here. Right. Like, yep. Harry's doubt about his ability to fit in magnifies when he meets, quote, a boy with a pale pointed face in Madame Malkin's robes for all occasions. We later learn, of course, this is Draco. In this first conversation, without even realizing or caring what he's doing, Draco makes Harry ashamed of how little he knows. Harry feels, quote, more stupid by the minute. Draco talks about Quidditch. What the fuck is this? <laughs> and Hogwarts houses and magical bloodlines. And this is a painful exchange, but it's important. It's Harry's initial exposure after escaping the horror of the Dursleys 
to a true horror, the reality that even in this community that from the outside seems so together, there's bigotry and awfulness in the Wizarding World, too. And that's an important thing for Harry and everybody who's consuming this story to remember. No place is perfect. No part of life is perfect. And Harry discovers in this chapter something else. People hate Slytherins. The witcher wizard went bad. <laughs> Hagrid says there's not a single witcher wizard who went bad who wasn't in Slytherin. You know who was one. Not precisely true. Not true. But, you know, Hagrid, broad strokes. Close to true. One of the really important lessons that the story teaches is that, quote unquote, good people are prejudiced too. And even the people who we root for, like Hagrid, who we all love, can be narrow-minded. Hagrid is exhibiting an unfortunate tendency here, one that Harry and all of his pals will also hold this prejudice against Slytherin House. And yeah, of course, guys, we all support you guys, whatever house you want to be in, it's great. Point is, a lot of bad people came from Slytherin. That's all we're saying. (laughs) That's all we're saying. And that's fact. We're just asking, you know, how does that discovery of what Harry is hearing from Hagrid shape what Harry will be looking for from his peers? And Harry's visit to Ollivander's, and we begin to discover in this section, wand lore. Yes. Quote, the very dust and silence in here seem to tingle with some secret magic. Ollivander's is a weird dude from the go, but also very intriguing. How about just like touching Harry's scar? Oh, oh, (laughs) it's very interesting. Mm. Oh. Oh. (laughs) Also, like... He says that James's wand was, quote, excellent for transfiguration, a tiny but fun marauder's prongs hint. Yes. And then he gets to the heart of it. Well, I say your father favored it. It's really the wand that chooses the wizard, of course. Here Aha. we go. He later adds, you will never get such good results with another wizard's wand. Yes. They are planting that seed mm. of the wand choosing the wizard and the core dynamic at play that so influences the end game of this story as central to our journey and to what Harry's open mind and open heart mean as yes. anything. And here, early in book one, there it is. It's I, incredible stuff. I, I'm just in awe. Wine lore in general, but particularly the difference between how Harry understands it and Voldemort does not is so fundamental to the conclusion. A key passage in terms of both the endgame and in terms of how it functions as one of the preliminary discoveries for Harry and for the reader in this moment is about how Harry and Voldemort are so connected. Ollivander says, it so happens that the phoenix whose tail feather is in your wand gave another feather. Just one other. Guys, of course, another bit of super fun foreshadowing here. That is Fox, Dumbledore's Phoenix, as we'll learn in time. Ollivander continues. It is very curious indeed that you should be destined for this wand when it's brother. Why? Its brother gave you that scar. Harry swallowed. Yes, 13 and a half inches. You. Curious indeed how these things happen. The wand chooses the wizard. Remember, I think we must expect great things from you, Mr. Potter. After all, he who must not be named did great things. Terrible. Yes, but great. This is such a crucial moment because not only again are we establishing so early this deep, unavoidable connection between Harry and Voldemort, but we're learning so much about the reverence, the reverence for Wanlore, the reverence for figures of power, the reverence for connections, and what those kinds of connections can signify in the kind of old magic that would fill a room like Ollivander's. Five chapters in, Harry has almost his entire journey still ahead of him. And yet, his discoveries so far have already fundamentally changed him. Harry kept looking around, 
the story reads. Everything looks so strange somehow. For us as well, guys. For us as well. Mal, Gringotts is the safest place in the world for anything you want to keep safe, except maybe Hogwarts. Well, let's put an asterisk on that. (laughs) So help us feel safe. Toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about the Wizarding Bank Gringotts. Gringotts! Enter stranger, but take heed of what awaits the sin of greed. For those who take but do not earn must pay most dearly in their turn. So if you seek beneath our floors a treasure that was never yours, thief, you have been warned. Beware of finding more than treasure there. Not exactly your standard welcome mat greeting, but those words engraved upon the second set of doors that grant entrance to the, quote, snowy white building that towered over the other little shops, end quote. Gringotts Wizarding Bank and Diagon Alley offer something far more useful than a platitude. A warning! Founded in 1474 by a goblin named Gringot, according to both a plaque at Wizarding World of Harry Potter and to Gringotts' very own chocolate frog card, The institution is located in Diagon Alley, near the intersection with Nocturne Alley, because, hey, sketchy folks need money, too. According to an old trivia test on JKR's website, Gringotts may be the oldest building in Diagon Alley, with other shops sprouting up around it over time. In a 2005 interview with ITV, Rowling said the name Gringotts came from the word ingot, which is a block of gold or silver or other type of metal, and that she added the grr sound for an intimidation factor. And there's plenty to be intimidated by. The bank's motto is fortius quo fidelius, Latin for strength through loyalty, which may or may not be on the welcome tote you get at Gringotts orientation. Though the bank is primarily staffed by goblins, whom Harry sees sitting on high stools behind the counter, quote, scribbling in large ledgers, weighing coins and brass scales, examining precious stones through eyeglasses, end quote. Humans work there too, albeit never directly with the vaults. We know that Bill Weasley works as a curse breaker for the bank and that his future wife, Fleur Delacour, also joined the bank in a part-time capacity to work on her English. In Deathly Hallows, as Voldemort expands his takeover of the wizarding world, we see that humans are also involved with bank security. In addition to housing wizarding currency— from Hagrid here, a little lesson on wizarding currency. Quote, the gold ones are galleons, 17 silver sickles to a galleon and 29 knuts to a sickle. It's easy enough. Guys, that's not easy at all. What the hell is that? That's ridiculously complex. The Gringotts vaults store myriad treasures. While the building's entryway and main hall are grand marble spectacles, the narrow passageways to the vaults are dark and foreboding, made of stone and torch lit. Small, self-driving, one-speed-only carts take patrons down to the vaults through more twists and turns than any human could hope to track past an underground lake. As Hagrid tells Harry upon their first trip to Diagon Alley, Gringotts is, quote, hundreds of miles under London, see? Deep under the underground. You'd die of hunger trying to get out, even if you did manage to get your hands on something. Just as with safety deposit boxes in the Muggle world, the Wizarding Bank offers various vault sizes and security levels. The big spenders out there, they get vaults deepest beneath the surface, which are the best protected. Some vaults, like Harry's, are accessible via key. Pretty basic. Others, like the vault in which the Sorcerer's Stone was stored, require a goblin's finger stroke to open, even if it's just storing a grubby little package like the stone. Still others, 
like the highly protected Lestrange family vault, require a goblin to place his entire palm against the door to open it. Our hero's book seven infiltration of that very vault provides some of our best insight into the most extreme protections that Gringotts offers. We witness in Deathly Hallows the work of the Thief's Downfall, a waterfall that washes away all magical enchantments and concealments and hurls intruders off the cart. We see the impact of certain protective spells, like the Gemino and Flagrante curses, which respectively cause objects to multiply and burn the thief who touches them. We also learn that summoning charms, which are very handy, do not work in these vaults. In Stone, Griphook tells Harry that if anyone but a Gringotts goblin tried to open one of the high-security vaults, they'd be sucked through the door and trapped inside, and then adds, helpfully, that the goblins only check for intruders about once a decade. So you get sucked in, you're dead. There are also murmurs of sphinxes which guard vaults via riddle. Imagine trying to access your own vault after a few fire whiskeys at the Leaky Cauldron and needing to solve one of these riddles. Hard pass on this, my dudes. Also, never forget poor Archie Philpot, who, according to Bill Weasley, quote, had a probity probe stuck up his, well, trust me, this way's easier. And of course... There are dragons. From the moment Hagrid reveals Gringotts' existence to Harry and issues one of the series' many infamously misguided lines about Gringotts and Hogwarts being the safest places in the world, narrator, they aren't. Part of the conventional wisdom presented centers on the fire-breathing beast rumored to rest in the caverns below the bank. Quote, They say there's dragons guarding the high-security vaults, Hagrid says, with great longing in his voice. During Harry's first cart ride, he thinks he sees a burst of fire at one point, but he can't turn quickly enough to tell if a dragon actually issued that flame. He'll see more than a mysterious flicker in time, though. When Harry and co. retrieve Hufflepuff's cup from the Lestrange vault in Hallows, they come face to face with a dragon that's been chained and abused, partially blinded and taught to fear the pain that comes when it hears the goblin's clankers. Harry, Ron, and Hermione make their escape on this very dragon, fleeing pursuit and freeing the creature to boot. Their infiltration and escape are, of course, a clear violation of the boast that Gringotts is impenetrable. Extreme brawn from Game of Thrones voice, give me three plucky kids and a goblin who's trying to get the sword of Gryffindor, and I'll impregnate the bitch. Long before Harry's Horcrux hunt, though, Quirrell managed to penetrate the bank and escape justice, failing in his mission only because Hagrid had emptied the vault in question earlier that day when he retrieved the stone. I can almost hear Westworld's Charlotte Hale making a snarky remark about the Goblin's next performance review. While actual breaches are, of course, the most concerning, there are also some oddities at play regarding who can access what and when. For example... We're supposed to buy that all Hagrid needs to get into a high-security vault holding the fucking Sorcerer's Stone is a note? I mean, maybe this note has whatever the Wizarding World's version of needing to use Touch ID or Face ID to access Apple Pay is, but it's unclear. And though Harry needs to present his key to access his vault, later in the series, Bill and Mrs. Weasley will both get money from his vault for him. We are also not sure how Sirius manages to use gold from his vault to buy Harry's firebolt when Sirius is, you know, a wanted wizard. Maybe the goblins are behind on Wizarding World's Most Wanted. But hey, not everyone's into Venmo. Jason? Yes? 17 silver sickles to a galleon and 29 canuts to a sickle. 
It's easy enough. It's just a weird, <laughs> weird way to divide it, but I'll go with it. <laughs> it's also easy enough to remember that seven is the most powerfully right. magical number. So let's split up our nuggets, if not our souls. Let's keep the souls intact. <laughs> By sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from these five chapters, obviously, in addition to everything that we've already talked about, I'll go first. Number one, Sirius. We get in book one, chapter one, Sirius Black mention, even though Sirius is not a real character in the story until the third book. We learn that Hagrid borrowed his motorcycle from young Sirius Black. This is just before the moment when everyone in the wizarding world will learn, real air quotes around yeah. learn, guys, because, you know, it doesn't end up being true, that young Sirius Black was the reason Harry's parents are dead. Again, not true, but that is a crucial moment in time in the story when Sirius is at Godric's Hollow and gives Hagrid the bike. Number two, first chapter, Dumbledore and McGonagall talking. Dumbledore goes into his cloak, takes out a little candy and says, Kind of a muggle sweet I'm rather fond of. It's a lemon drop. This will turn out to be the password to Dumbledore's office. And then the description of Dumbledore. His nose was very long and crooked, as though it had been broken at least twice. Yes, broken by his brother in a fight which we will learn much more about in time and which will really deepen our understanding of Dumbledore as a person. Oh, man. Good old Aberforth. Number three. Dumbledore uses the Deluminator uh-huh. here, unfortunately, as Jason will lament, st- called the put-outer. It's, I just don't. <laughs> can we stick with Deluminator? It's so much more noble and, dis, you know, distinguished. Of this, is, <laughs> this is the dope invention of Dumbledore's that, you know, we see him right away turning out the lights yeah. on Privet Drive so that he can conduct his business under the cloak of darkness. This is also the object That's right. that Dumbledore will leave to Ron. In Deathly Hallows, and that will help Ron greatly and crucially on his journey. Number four, our first exposure to anime guy and apparition. Quote, a man appeared on the corner. The cat had been watching, appeared so suddenly and silently, you'd have thought he'd just popped out of the ground. I love the way that she describes apparition as as a pop, a popping sound, like you're being squeezed through a straw and then a pop. And an anima guy, like, it'd be so cool to turn into. Can't wait to have extensive discussions about what we would turn into. (laughs) Number five, we are introduced to or first learn about a ton of more minor characters who will play some sort of more important role later in the book, including Mrs. Fig, Aunt Marge. Yes. In a funny Wilk. (laughs) To Dallas Diggle. And, of course, Grip hook. Just again, so much here right away. Number six. Harry asks Hagrid why he was expelled. We learn the following year why. And of course, when you are expelled from Hogwarts. Snap that wand. Snap that wand. Break that wand up. Where's your wand, my guy? Oh, I, you know, I don't know uh, what's, uh, where it's at. You know, it's, I have the pieces somewhere. Why are you carrying an umbrella around all the time? <laughs> ah! Why are you tightly gripping your pink umbrella when Mr. Ollivander asks if you have your wand pieces still? Also, like, why do you use them? Point your umbrella at things. (laughs) Let's we'll get into it later. Hagrid, master of subtlety, master number seven. This is just another another fun little hint about stuff that will end up mattering more later. Two fun little things on Harry's book list for school. We get our first Bathilda Bagshot name because, of course, she is the author of A History of Magic. And then, delightfully, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them by Newt Scamander. Good book, good movie. 
Coming to a theater near you. Yeah. Mal. Yeah. I want to tell you about today's champion. His name was. Could you write it down? Nah, I can't spell it. <laughs> All right. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea that compelled us the most. And today we're awarding the House Cup for perhaps the only time. <laughs> Rubius Hagrid. Wonderful man. Delightful man. Not exactly championship material, but a wonderful human being, half giant. And the only thing <laughs> as big as him is his heart. That's right. He is a really a key part of the soul of the story. Just the unabashed emotion that you get from him right away. Oh my God. Listen, you don't have to tell him that it was a tragedy that Lillian James died He's because devastated. he shows up absolutely weeping, weeping. The attachment that he forms to Harry yes, is immediate. Immediate. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. We learn that not only does Hagrid have a big heart, he yeah. is an important figure for Dumbledore who trusts him when McGonagall's like, uh, you think it wise to trust Hagrid with something as important as this, being transporting right. Harry. Dumbledore says, I would trust Hagrid with my life. Now, that carries weight. It does carry Right weight. away, before you know anything else about Dumbledore, you understand that his word and his judgment carries weight. Also, it's that first moment where you're like, really? You do? Okay. Even though she just <laughs> told you that the reason she knew you were here is because Hagrid told her, even though presumably he wasn't supposed to. And yes. you guys are all like, oh, yes. who betrayed us? Someone betrayed us. Who on our side is the mole? And everyone's just like saying where y'all are. Yeah. Not great. And his hut entrance is an all-time moment. Ugh. A meme before memes were a thing. Love it. You're just instantly awed by the sheer spectacle, the enormity of him, but also instantly won over by the gentle way he goes about his business, the crinkly eyes. I the love that description, the crinkle. It's wonderful. And then Hagrid also wins points for being the first character to issue what will become the staple Harry That's description. Right. You look a lot like your dad. You got your mom's eyes. Got your mom's eyes. Also, he makes Harry a birthday cake. Good guy. Baked it myself, words and all. That's right. <laughs> I also love when he asks for the tea and then, in essence, demands liquor. And then when, of course, the Dursleys, frozen in horror, do nothing, he just pulls a bottle <laughs> out of his also coat. Also, the fact that he love the coat. snatches a shotgun out of Vernon's hands. Truly incredible. It. Truly incredible. The could you write it down? Nah, I can't spell it moment when he's trying to tell nah, Harry about spread. Voldemort is an all-timer. Tells you so much so quickly about Hagrid. It's really perfection. And... Even though he doesn't know he's doing it, he does get credit from us for yes. laying really the foundational groundwork about Horcruxes and Lily's sacrifice and yes. the prophecy and yes. all of these crucial things. He's a gateway for Harry and for us. And he's also so kind. And he gave Dudley a tail. He gave Dudley a tail, which is fantastic. And gave Harry Hedwig, buys him an owl, which is like truly wow. one of the great relationships Beautiful. in this story. So Hedwig, beautiful. I mean, we're going to talk about this a lot later. Hedwig, not just a pet. Hedwig, there's a relationship there. When Harry doesn't pay attention to Hedwig oh, yeah. or when Harry like is asks too much or is like not asking enough, Hedwig is like, yo, what the fuck? Yeah. Hedwig is a advanced sentient being. Extremely Literally a magical creature. advanced. And he also now issues the now infamous, everyone says Hufflepuff or a lot of duffers, but, but. 
But guys, we love Hufflepuffs. We love them. We have binge mode love Hufflepuffs. Listen. All houses are welcome here. Listen, All houses. If you play the fuck, marry, kill game, the nuptials, <laughs> you want to marry a Hufflepuff. I'm just saying. Because that's loyalty. So you're fucking fuck and killing. And, but then who are you leaving out? You got to leave out a house entirely. Oh, that's right. That's true. I think, well, let's leave out Gryffindor because they get too much pub anyway. Of the <laughs> others. I think there's a chance you leave out Ravenclaw. And yeah. Jason and I both. We are Ravenclaw. Yeah. Our sorting tests usually give us Ravenclaw. Right. So this is not a shot at Ravenclaw at all. Shouts to Ravenclaw, that's in right. fact. Would be on measure as man's greatest that's treasure. Right. But in the fuck, marry, kill equation, I think you're marrying a Ravenclaw or a Hufflepuff. You're going to kill a Slytherin. And you're, you're taking a Gryffindor for a tumble, I think. Yes. Is that true? I yeah. was once told by someone that, you know, you don't want the most, interesting, the most interesting partners are in Slytherin, which I can see. Who told you that, Pansy I'm Parkinson? Some people. I'm just, I don't, I don't want to name names. Uh, Blaze, Sabini. <laughs> That's right. You and Crab and Goyle just having a chat <laughs> Crab after and a couple whiskeys, a couple fire whiskeys. Not great conversationalists, <laughs> Crab and Goyle. <laughs> Hagrid's a great conversationalist, yes, he though. Is. He says, see that, Harry? Things these muggles dream up, eh? And you know what he's talking about? Parking meters. Yes. Look at that. What an angel. Yeah. Knits on the train. Because nothing fits him. A lot of knitting in, yeah. in Harry Potter, by the way. And of course, we cannot minimize that when Harry is feeling down, That's right. Hagrid offers up words of sincere comfort. He says, some of the best I ever saw were the only ones with magic in them and a long line of muggles. Look at your mom and dad. Look what she had for her sister. This right. is after Harry expresses concern about his family and his upbringing. And finally, he shows what an accepting, supportive, nurturing soul he is when he says to Harry, I know it's hard. You've been singled out, and that's always hard, but you'll have a great time at Hogwarts. Wonderful. And we hope that you guys will have a great time here at Binge Mode. Yeah. It's lucky it's dark. We haven't blushed so much since Madame Pomfrey told us she liked our new earmuffs. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you were as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you will join us again tomorrow. Yeah, literally tomorrow. Woo! When the next episode of this podcast will drop, we will be discussing Sorcerer's Stone chapters 6 through 10. Huge thanks, as always, to Binge Mode Harry Potter producer Isaac Lee and researcher and fact checker Zach Cram, who are the human versions of our room of requirement. Zach Cram, the human restricted section that he is. (laughs) Thanks, Zach and Isaac. Until then, remember, we couldn't know that at this very moment, people meeting in secret all over the country were holding up their glasses and saying in hushed voices, to binge mode Harry Potter, the pod that lived. Woo! Ah, ten and a half inches. Unicorn hair. Let's try this. What do you think? No, no, that's... Wait, that was good. What are you talking about? It's like lightning came out of the... No, nope. Let's try another one. Let's try this. How about this one? This is oak, nine and a half inches, with troll spleen. No, no, that's not That's not quite it. But your whole shop disintegrate. No, that's not what I'm looking for. Just looking for sparkles, simple sparkles, that's all.